for now, would you journey with me, no, not to Africa, but back to Israel. We're in a series, have been for some time, and will continue to be until I get tired of it. <clears throat> and so uh, it's called Life Lessons from the Holy Land. And tonight I want us to go to a quite unique place called the Temple Mount. It's in the heart of Jerusalem, and you might not have known it's there, but you've seen pictures of it. Whenever you see a panorama of the city, uh, this is the most prominent feature of it. It's called the Temple Mount, though no temple stands on it today. Yet it did in the past and will in the future. In the past, in fact, two temples stood on this well, it's a raised, elevated, large platform. One temple, the first, was built by Solomon. It took seven years to build, and it housed the very special Ark of the Covenant in a place called the Holy of Holies. You and I could not enter into it, only the high priest and he, only on special occasions. Well, it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. But then after 70 years of captivity, the Jews, that is, being held captive in Babylon, by God's gracious intervention, they were permitted to return to Yerushalayim, uh, Jerusalem, there to rebuild the temple. And so they did so. Uh, in uh, 580, uh, 516 B.C. Now that temple had a second phase of renovation and it was uh, undertaken and completed by someone whose name we've mentioned in the last few weeks many times, Herod the Great. And what he did is that he saw the dimensions of Solomon's temple and because he was a bit of an egomaniac, he deliberately expanded its precincts. So he made the temple much larger and the platform on which it stood. And so what you're seeing before you is that very temple mount on which the second temple, the one renovated by Herod, stood. It's quite significant because that's the temple in which the Lord Jesus uh, conducted his ministry. He and his followers, you see, were familiar with this, the second temple built by Herod the Great. It was destroyed by the Romans, the 10th Roman Legion, in A.D. 70. And then the Bible talks to us of two temples to come. One is constructed outside of the will of God. It's a place which has been authorized, not by God, by, but someone referred to in the Bible as the man of lawlessness. Don't fence me in. If it feels good, do it. I don't want any restraint. He's the prince of I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. He's the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist. He will require that he be worshipped out of this temple. Well, it comes to an end. It's destroyed in a fashion we really are not specifically and precisely told of in the Bible. Subsequent to it, however, stands another glorious temple. This one is authorized by God. It stands on this very temple mount. 
during a period uh, characterized by the literal 1,000-year earthly reign of the Lord Jesus. That's called the millennium. It's called the millennial temple. And he will rule and reign from there. And we're going to be with him, you see. We're going to make it to Israel. No jet lag. Nothing like that. We'll be there with the Lord Jesus worshiping, no, not Antichrist, but the real Christ in the millennial temple. It's going to be the largest. It requires that the temple mount be enlarged even beyond its present size. How will that come to pass? I have no idea, but I think God could pull it off. I mean, all it's going to take to remove the structure presently on it is a little earthquake. And there are plenty of them in this part of the world. And I'm not predicting that that will happen. I'm just saying there are all kinds of means at God's disposal to cut through the political, geopolitical uh, complications of vacating the structure on the Temple Mount today. In other words, God could get rid of it in a whole bunch of different ways without United Nations approval. I'll tell you that right now. So anyway, that's going to happen. Now, um, Thank you for expressing your support of the United Nations. So, on it now is this rather striking architectural feature. You know, it's called the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock, which presently occupies the Temple Mount, is an Islamic shrine built right there where the Temple first, Solomon's, Second, Herod's, and the two future temples will stand. Right now, the space is occupied by an Islamic shrine called the Dome of the Rock. Construction on it was begun in 685 A.D., and it was completed in 691 A.D. That makes this Dome of the Rock the oldest existing Islamic building in the entire world. So it's quite significant. In fact, it's not only architecturally magnificent and striking to behold, it's a symbol of something you may not be too pleased to know about, but it is a symbol of this thing nonetheless. It is a striking symbol of the supremacy of Islam as over against Judaism and Christianity. You see, its very elevated position over two very special holy sites in those two world religions demonstrates in the mind of its followers its supremacy. You see, just down from it is the Western or Wailing Wall. We've been there before in a prior uh, lesson. This is a very holy spot in Judaism. It was the perimeter wall, you see, around the Temple Mount on which once stood the Holy of Holies. Jewish people pray there. It's quite important to them. But it's way below uh, the elevated dome of the rock. You see, its placement on the Temple Mount is a striking statement of its supremacy over Judaism and over Christianity. You see, down the block from the Western Wall is a special place for many, many uh, Christian denominations called the Church 
of the Holy Sepulchre. It is thought by many that that is the spot which marks both the crucifixion, resurrection, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Pilgrims from all over the world make pilgrimage to that uh, holy spot in order to focus, we hope, their attention on the risen Savior. And so you see, it too is removed and lower down from the Temple Mount than is the Dome of the Rock. Its presence is a symbolic statement of the fact that God has replaced Judaism and Christianity with Islam. In fact, the people of the book, that is the book known as the Bible, in their disobedience have forfeited, according to Islam, uh, have forfeited the promises of God. So the people of the old covenant, the Jews, people of that book, in their disobedience have forfeited, so say, Islamic people, uh, forfeited God's promises. And the people of the book called the New Testament, Christians, have also forfeited the promises of God in their disobedience. And so God has taken all of these promises and transferred over them to followers of Allah instead. And that's the religion known as Islam, you say. So this is quite an important structure in quite an important place. In fact, just to enhance the symbol of superiority over uh, the two other world monotheistic religions, Judaism and Christianity, in the engineering and design of the Dome of the Rock, uh, the builders utilized a form which is absolutely foreign to Islamic architecture. It's called a rotunda. You do not find it in Islamic architecture. Do you know where you find a rotunda? You find it in Christian churches. In fact, there is a rotunda, a dome, in this uh, church of the Holy Sepulchre down the block that I mentioned to you. And when the Dome of the Rock, this Islamic shrine, when it was designed, the designers went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and they measured the size of its rotunda and made sure that this one, the Dome of the Rock, exceeds it. So it's a very striking statement, this building of the supremacy of Islam over Judaism and Christianity. And so this dome of the rock is about 60 feet in diameter, and it is mounted on a circle of 16 columns and piers, and then surrounding this circle is an octagonal eight-sided arcade consisting of 24 additional columns and piers. Now the eight-sided feature of the inside of the Dome of the Rock is duplicated on the outside. So on the outside you have eight walls. And each of these walls is 60 feet wide and about 36 feet high. Early on in the construction of it, gold coins were melted down so and cast so as to provide for its literally golden dome. However, in 1960, as part of a massive restoration project, the dome was covered not in gold but in uh, an aluminum and bronze 
alloy made in Italy uh, because it is more durable, you see. And the restoration project was funded by uh, various Arab governments. Then in 1998, it was thought that the golden feature of the dome ought to be replaced, again, not with literal gold, but kind of a filigree. And in order to fund this restoration uh, project, uh, a donation w of $8.2 million was provided by then King Hussein uh, of Jordan. And what he did to come up with the money was to sell just one of his homes. This one happened to be in London. And from the sale of his London residence, he funded the refurbishing of the dome so as to take on its gold uh, color today. Under Jordanian rule, you may not know, but Jordan ruled and had possession in modern times of the old city of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. And so under uh, Jordanian rule of Jerusalem, uh, the Jews were forbidden from entering the old city. You see, uh, Titus forced them out, did he not, in A.D. 70? And really, except for intermittent times, they've been out for 2,000 years. And so Jordan continued to exclude Jews, really, from their own uh, God-given city. But then something happened, you see. It was in 1967. Israel was attacked. And by God's grace, not Israel's brilliant military strategy, they won. It was called the Six-Day War. And as a result of their victory in the Six-Day War in 1967, uh, they took, they retook possession of the old city, including this, the Temple Mount. They have not been there for 2,000 years. And so this was quite a celebration. And what they did as part of the celebration was to raise the Israeli flag for the first time in 2,000 years here on the Temple Mount. But... Uh, they were ordered to take it down just a few hours after they raised it up. And the order was given by none other than General Moshe Dayan. You might know him. He wore a patch, you know, famous Russian, uh, excuse me, Russian. <laughs> Where that came from? A famous Israeli general. He told them take it down. You know why? Uh, they gave authority over the Temple Mount to the Muslim uh, religious leadership so as to show goodwill and frankly to prevent a world war. Remember, this was a holy site in Islam. So Dayan and the, the Israeli leadership turned over control. It's like uh, our government turning over um, uh, one of the monuments in Washington, D.C. to an uh, adversarial foreign government so that it becomes its own territory. And your right of access to it is excluded, though you be a tax-paying American. Would you like it? Well, that's what's happening in Jerusalem. And so since the Temple Mount came to be under Muslim authority, uh, you can only make your way up there when they permit it. You go through checkpoints. You cannot bring Bibles. You cannot sing songs. You dare not mention the name of Jesus up there. We do it anyway. But you dare not do it. You could be removed. It is in the heart of Jerusalem. But 
It is under the authority of the Muslim religious leadership. And it is a very important site for Islamic people uh, after Mecca and Medina, uh, uh, associated with Muhammad. This is the third holiest site in Islam. And its significance uh, stems from the uh, Islamic belief uh, regarding the rock under the dome. There's a huge natural bedrock under uh, the dome, which is quite significant to Islamic people because the Quran uh, teaches that this rock under this dome is the very spot from which Muhammad ascended to heaven on a horse while being accompanied by the angel Gabriel, you see. So it's a very, very important spot in Islamic thinking. Now, interestingly, the stone over which this beautiful dome, uh, you see it's tiled in porcelain tiles. Suleiman, the Magnificent, is the one who designed these rather beautiful tiles. Uh, well, the stone over which this dome is built is also considered holy by many, many Jewish people because it is believed to be the very site of the Holy of Holies, which was there during the temple period, you see. So it's quite a strategically important rock. Muslim people also believe that this rock here on the Temple Mount is the place from which Abraham nearly sacrificed who? No. The Quran says Ishmael. The Bible says Isaac. The Quran says, no, Abraham the prophet was about to offer in sacrifice. No, 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 not Isaac, but Ishmael. And so that's what the Quran teaches. I don't think it's right. <laughs> On the top of this dome is a moon symbol which is reminiscent of the very frequently used symbol for Islam, a uh, crescent moon. And the interesting thing about the moon symbol on the top of this uh, golden dome of the rock is that if you are able to position yourself so, to, so as to look through it, you would be looking straight towards Mecca, Mecca in Saudi Arabia, a place historically associated uh, with the prophet Mohammed. Well, there are various inscriptions, you can see some on the outside and on the inside of the Dome of the Rock, and they're in Arabic, and some are taken directly from the Quran, which you know is the holy book in Islam. And I want to read to you uh, one of these uh, inscriptions translated from the Arabic into English, taken uh, directly from the Quran, and as I read it, you think about whether it resonates well with you. Here's what it says. O oh, you people of the book, overstep not bounds in your religion, and of God speak only the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, is only an apostle of God. And his word which he conveyed unto Mary and a spirit proceeding from him. 
Believe therefore in God and his apostles and say not three. It will be better for you. God is only one God. Far be it from his glory that he should have a son. That is a direct quote from the Quran. It's on this building today. In your face. In your face, followers of Jesus. God has no son. Let me put the best construction on this. Maybe it is an attempt, misdirected though it be, to protect the holy otherness of God. Maybe. But in an attempt to protect the transcendence and holy otherness of God, the religion of Islam is neglecting the nearness of God. He is Emmanuel. God came near. Can I direct your attention to one verse of Scripture, John chapter 1, verse 14. Easy to find John chapter 1. Let me encourage you to turn there. We'll um, emphasize one verse, but I'll call your attention to a few others as well. John 1, 14. Uh, this is in the New Covenant. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Uh, the fourth of four uh, biographical accounts of this Jesus, Son of God who's denied to be the Son of God, in Arabic inscription right on the Dome of the Rock down to this very day. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. The verse begs the question, who or what is this unnamed word? Can I ask you to back up to verse 1 of the same chapter? In the beginning was the word. Whoever the word is had pre-existence. Before the beginning of anyone or anything else, the word was. By the way, pre-existence is a characteristic of deity. You did not have pre-existence. You came into existence at a point in time. Your existence did not precede the beginning. No, you're one who had a beginning. This word existed before the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God stood in a kind of face-to-face -face relationship with God himself, and the word was God. Now, wait a minute. My puny brain cannot wrap itself around this. Which is it? Did the word stand in the presence of God, or was the word God? This says yes, both. He stood in the presence of God and was God. No, I can't figure it out, but I don't want to be so arrogant as to deny the truthfulness of the statement just because I can't fully comprehend it. The audacity of the creature to call into question what the Creator says just because we can't fully comprehend it. We are arrogant, I tell you. This one not only was with God, but 
was God. He, wait just a minute. Now I find out the word is not a philosophical concept, a body of thought, an abstraction. No, the masculine personal pronoun is now used in verse 2 with reference to the word. He, you mean to tell me the word has personhood? Yes, I do. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Can you pull that off? No, this too is a characteristic of deity. The capacity to create, to author creation. You can't do that. You can put some things together and construct something out of what is. You can't call into being what is not. Only God could do it. He, the word done, did it. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, in case you're missing the point, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Now, we got four verses that told us a truckload about the word mentioned. Now, back to verse 14. The word was, uh, and the word that was, was with God, and the word that was, was God, and the word became flesh. Wait just a second. Can you imagine hearing about this, reading this, writing this for the first time? Can you imagine you're John? Don't you think John might have been tempted to say just what Islamic people say on the Dome of the Rock? God has no son. Don't you think John, the monotheistic Jewish person who valued the transcendence and unapproachably holy nature of God, could easily have declared, just as Islamic people have on the Dome of the Rock, don't you think he, this Jewish man, could have said the same thing? Wait! God has no son. You know, but John didn't do anything like that. In, and he could have. Do you know John existed before the writers of the Quran? John was closer to the facts than Muhammad was. John was there. And you know what John said? Not only did he not deny that God had a son, he said, the word, who we now know is a he, who we now know has preexistence, who we now know was the agent of all creation, of him, John said, the word became flesh, the nearness of God, and dwelt among us. He would defend the transcendence and holiness of God, and yet he would bring into juxtaposition with it a concept, yeah, we have a hard time harmonizing. Too bad. They're both right. Not only is God holy other, but God is also holy here. He came near. He became enfleshed. He dwelt among us. You know that the word dwelt, do you know? In the original language is actually the word from which we get the word tabernacle. So I could legitimately translate this verse instead, and the word, come on, that's Jesus. Words are meant for communication. And the word tabernacled amongst us. Do you see how striking this is? We're talking about a spot on which stood that which came subsequent to the tabernacle of the wilderness. It was the temple. 
God gave both the tabernacle and the temple as a visible, physical, concrete point of contact between people and him. He said, I'll meet you here. Call upon my name. But he never meant those points of contact to be permanent. They were only temporary. He never meant them to be the substance. They're only the shadow of the substance. They gave way to the reality, the substantive, ultimate reality, the ultimate point of contact between sinful people and a holy God. And that's the word which became flesh and tabernacle. You know what it means? He pitched his tent amongst us. As the tabernacle was a tent constructed during the wilderness wanderings, Almighty God said, I've given you a permanent point of contact just foreshadowed by the tabernacle and the temple which you make such a big deal over. They're just foreshadowings of the ultimate point of contact. I sent my son, and you know what he did? He became enfleshed so as to pitch his tent amongst you so that during your wilderness wanderings, you could see how near he is, how close he is, and how ready he is to help you get through the wilderness wanderings. He pitched his tent among us. Jesus, being God, is omnipresent. But when he, God's son, came to be enfleshed, he gave us a sense of his special presence, even in our midst. And why did he do it? Two words. He did it to die. That's why. He came to live amongst us to die for us. How can God die? He can't. Unless he becomes man. And Jesus did without forfeiting his godness. He didn't empty himself of his godness. He added to his godness humanness. In essence, he remained God. On the outside, he took on flesh. Why? To die. That's why. I want to preserve the transcendence and holy otherness of God, but I also want to rejoice over the nearness of God. You know why else God's Son came and was enfleshed? He came to show us God. How else do you know Him? Look, and we saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't you see? Because God has a Son, because God sent His Son, because His Son came and fleshed and pitched His tent among us, don't you see? We no longer have to speculate about who God is and what He's like. I think God is like this. I think God is like that. I don't think God would ever allow that to happen. Oh, I don't think... Who cares what you or I think speculatively of God when His Son declared Him with accuracy to be who He is? Look no further! I'm not engaging in foolish philosophical discussions about who God is and what He's like. He came and pitched His tent among us so that we could see His glory 
full of grace and truth. You can't know God by intellectual faculties. Shame on us. We're so filled with pride and arrogance. I think, I feel, who cares? God said, God came, and the Word became flesh. Words are meant to communicate. The Word communicated the otherwise unseen nature of the Father. I don't have to guess what He's like. When I want to see God, I want to behold Jesus, and then I see God clearly. I don't have to speculate. Do you know in ancient time, philosophers of high intellect were nonetheless quite depressed and frustrated by their awareness of the infinite distance and unknowability of God. Plato, for instance, said, never man and God can meet. Celsius said, God is a way beyond everything. Apollos said men could catch a glimpse of God as a lightning flash lights up a dark night. One split second of illumination and then the dark. No. A thousand times no. And the word became the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No, God came near. God and man can meet. The darkness can be dispelled. God came near. But what qualifies this Jesus to be the revealer of God? John tells us, he is the only begotten from the Father. He is the exact representation. You're not. I'm not. Nobody is. The only one of a kind. Begotten. No, he's not adopted. He's begotten. Only he is the only begotten one of a kind from the Father. That's why he is the ultimate, perfect, only one qualified to reveal the otherwise unseen nature of the Father. He stands in a unique relationship with the Father. He's uniquely qualified to reveal Him. And He, just like His Father, is full of grace and truth. Why are these two attributes of God singled out for us in this verse when God is excellent in all of his perfections? Well, I think it's because grace and truth apply very, very directly to our salvation. It isn't possible if the word of God wasn't filled with grace and truth. Don't you see? There are many other attributes associated with him. But these two indeed are most essential. Look, grace forgives and truth assures us of the forgiveness. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, brought us perfect redemption in His grace. And He brought us perfect revelation of the Father in His truth. He's filled with grace and truth. Jesus, God's Son, is the basis 
the only basis on which we can know who God is. Jesus, God's Son, is the basis upon which we can know God is good. Jesus, God's Son, is the basis on which we can know God is mighty and compassionate and kind and loving and forgiving. And because of Jesus, we could know God is near. So here's the life lesson I choose to derive from our visit to the Temple Mount, and I offer it to you. The priceless Son of God paid a big price just to get close to me. Do you mind repeating this with me? Because I don't want you to think it's me, it's you. Look, can you say, repeat after me. The priceless Son of God paid a big price to be closer to me. What a son. The only begotten son. We're told with whom the Father is well pleased. And yet the Father, we're also told this, so loved the world, corrupt though it be, that he gave this only begotten Son, that whosoever, Jew, Muslim, anybody, that whosoever would believe in a denomination, in a doctrine, in a doggone building? No. Whosoever would believe in him, two options, would not perish. What's the alternative? Yeah. Jesus came near for you. If you have come near to him as a believer, you got everything you could possibly need, no matter what else you may lose. Health, wealth, rubbish. For the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus. If Jesus has come near, and because of some prejudice, some arrogance, some pride, You refuse to come near to him. I pity you. You're in desperate need. But he came so loving you that if you would only place your faith, your confidence, your belief, if you would submit, if you would yield, that's what it means, if you would connect with him, He offers you the promise of life that extends on into eternity, real life. You'd be enlarged. (laughs) You'd live big. (laughs) You'd live with the life which only the giver of life could give. And he already demonstrated his commitment to do that. Look who he sent for you. And one day you, me, all of us will stand before the Father and the Father will say, what did you do with my son? I accepted him. And the Father will say, then you too are my son. You too are my daughter. 
What did you do with my son? I rejected him. I ignored him. I exchanged him for Mohammed. Moses. Reverend Moon. Money. Then the father will say, then so be it unto you, unto eternity. Separation from my son, who you rejected. That's pretty weighty, isn't it? Why don't you take Jesus as your Savior tonight? If you haven't already. You got a reason? Why don't you take Jesus? Why don't you say, the tabernacle, the temple, all this stuff... It's only a shadow. It's only of you. You're the point of God. I can't get to God. I can't build a structure so high as to reach into heaven. I can't build a ladder. No more Tower of Babel for me. I can't be good enough to merit you. I accept the fact, therefore, that you extended yourself down to me with an open hand, releasing your son for me so that I could have a relationship with you just like he does I want to be a son I want to be a daughter come into my life Lord Jesus grant me by grace your forgiveness grant me by grace adoption and by truth I accept it Lord Jesus pretty serious isn't it point of decision for one or two or more even tonight. Prior religious affiliation, notwithstanding ethnicity, age, whatever. None of those are barriers, impediments. You came to save any who are willing. Lord Jesus, in the power which only you possess to save, I pray you would do so tonight in the lives of those who do not know you. Would you move them, Lord Jesus, to express an interest in contact with you through your Son? Would you impress upon them, O God, that you took on flesh in order to come close to that one, that other, who is still yet not close to you. You're the deliverer. You're the savior. May your excruciating death not be in vain for anyone here to die. Have your way, Lord Jesus, as savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.